Hey y'all, welcome back to Holler Back Season 3, Episode 3. I'm Stacy, And I'm Billy Deverix. And we are very excited to have former senator and co-founder of the East Kentucky Health Service Center uh, in Knott County, uh, Dr. Benny Ray Bailey Sr. on this episode of Holler Back. Uh, Dr. Bailey, do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Oh, my name is Benny Ray Bailey. I, I was the co-founder of East Kentucky Health Services Center and live in Mallee, Kentucky and Knott County. So tell us a little bit about your story, um, Dr. Bailey. How did you go about the journey to where you are today? Well, I was born and reared on Left Beaver Creek at the Spewing Camp Branch in Floyd County. I graduated from McDowell High School. I went to Caney Junior College and then to Pikeville College and taught school for a year at Prestonsburg High School and for a year at Wheelwright High School and then went back to Indiana State University in Terre Haute, Indiana, and got a master's degree, came back to uh, Alice Lloyd College as assistant dean of students uh, when I was 22 years old. And at Alice Lloyd started a student work program called Alcor, which it initially was Alice Lloyd Community Outreach. And as we expanded, it was Appalachian Leaders and Community Outreach. And we ran community centers and uh, actually 16 centers when we were at Dallas Lloyd, but we expanded that program to include Hazard Community College, Southeast Community College, Lees Junior College, and Union and Cumberland College. So we had 22 counties that we were operating in and we uh, uh, recruited and placed in those uh, centers every summer, uh, two local college students and a student nurse that we recruited nationwide. And uh, one of the people who was involved with that program with me was Grady Stumbo, who was also a graduate of McDowell High School and Caney Junior College, but went to the University of Kentucky and on to medical school. And so Grady wanted to start a medical clinic and he couldn't find a clinic that had the infrastructure that he wanted to practice in. So he decided to build his own. Uh, during that time, I was invited to join a group called the JDR the third task force on youth in 1971. Uh, the JDR is John D. Rockefeller. And Grady wanted me to help raise the money to fund a clinic in East Kentucky. Uh, we chose Knott County because we knew something about Knott County and because Knott County didn't have a clinic. Uh, there was hospitals in Floyd County, Letcher County, uh, Prairie County, Pike County. There was no there was no medical clinical facility in Knott County. There were two doctors, Dr. Barker and Dr. Watts, who just did a tremendous job over here and really was a godsend to, to the people here. But they were doctor's offices. There'd never been an x-ray machine in the county, uh, for example. So we came to Knott County and started East Kentucky Health Services Center, completely one of the very few uh, clinics in America, actually, that has never received any federal grant assistance. Uh, we did all of our fundraising with private foundations and corporations. Uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was our biggest contributor of about $3 million back in 74, 75, 76. Uh, so we raised the money to build the clinic. The clinic's, the clinic's being rec recognized. It is the model program for all Horizon 76 bicentennial programs in America. And it's part of the 10, there's a 10 minute section of the bicentennial film called We Hold These Truths. It was also a 
a part of uh, C. Everett Koop, who was Surgeon General of America, that did a, a uh, hour-long special for NBC News called Healthcare in America. We were the only rural clinic funded, featured in that program. And then a lady by the name of Miss Helen Hayes, who was probably the most famous Broadway actress, uh, did a so, uh, program called Healthcare in America called No Place Like Home. And she did that for WNET in New York. And she came down and we were the only rural program in that program. So the program, the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, after they funded us, funded the rural practice project for the University of North Carolina for $22 million to duplicate East Kentucky Health Services in 20 locations across rural America. So the clinic's been pretty much, and, and today uh, the Anthem Insurance Company, which formerly was Blue Cross Blue Shield, says that in terms of quality, East Kentucky Health Services is the number one clinic in their uh, area of Indiana and Kentucky. Uh, so the clinic has been pretty much recognized as a model program throughout, throughout America. And that's where I am today. <laughs> well, th that's amazing. That's a, that's a pretty cool story. Um, so from, from my understanding, the East Kentucky Health Services Center, um, when it was established, like you said, there was no other uh, health clinic in Knott County. Uh, could, could you elaborate on the differences between a health clinic and individual doctor's offices? Well, <clears throat> individual doctor's offices are just that. The doctor has an office and you see him in his, in his office. As a matter of fact, that's pretty much a thing of the past. You, you don't find doctors anymore uh, practicing in an office. They usually are part of a corporation, part of a larger organization. Uh, the, the medical clinic would have laboratory facilities, x-ray facilities, we had dental facilities, a dental office, the first full-time dentist in Dot County, uh, and have other things other than just a doctor's office. So that's the difference in a clinical facility and the doctor's office. That's awesome. Um, it sounds to us like the East Kentucky Health Services Center was kind of ahead of its time regarding innovation. I know that um, whenever Billy and I were prepping for this episode, he was telling me about how his phone call talked about how the um, clinic was one of the first to go to electronic um, systems. And so, like, could you tell us more about the innovative technologies in the early years of the clinic? I had a, I had a friend of mine who was the chairman of the Engineering Economic Systems Department at Stanford University. He only accepted PhD candidates into his program and they had to do internships. So he sent us one of his PhD candidates who did his internship with us for a year. Uh, Mike Higgins was this guy's name. <clears throat> the Bill did a grant to study the transportation systems in Los Angeles County. It was a urban mass transit authority is where the money came from. Uh, Los Angeles County in California Santa Clara County in California, which is San Francisco, and Knott County, Kentucky. So Knott County got in on that grant and that paid for this guy to come and stay with us for a year. And he developed for us what he called a bias system, which was billing information accounting system. We bought the first computer to come off the assembly line from IBM. It was about the size of a dining room table. We still got it in the basement of the clinic. It had, if you can imagine this, that big a machine had 13 million bytes of information storage. 
you've got about a hundred times more than that on your cell phone today. The, the storage was such that we had to separate our patient load from everybody whose last names from A through M and from N on through the rest of it and put load into patients and take out the patients and load in the second group of patients to do billing every month. And the bias system that Mike did for us was billing information and accounting system. Um, we uh, did that in 1975. We computerized the clinic, not the medical records, but the billing information and accounting system. We could tell you how many nine-year-old boys who lived at Mousy come to the clinic in the last six months and was tested for worms. And we could tell you if we looked at the diagnosis, how many people come in that were not tested for worms that should have been by looking at what was done to them. So it's a very good information system. As a matter of fact, uh, the University of Kentucky, who told us initially that they that we were too far away from them for them to offer us any help, uh, bought that system. We, they asked us to give it to them and we sold it to them. We sold them to buy a system with our family practice program. Well, that's really interesting. That's pretty cool. So you had the first IBM computer off the assembly line. Personal computer. Personal computer. And the personal computer, like I said, is about the size of a dining room table. In nineteen in nineteen seventy five. If you don't mind my asking, um, how much did that cost then? And maybe like, could we relate it to the value of what it would be today? Then it cost $54,000. Wow. We, we got a uh, foundation in, in New Jersey called the Fannie Ripple Foundation to pay for that. Today, it's about $1,000. You could buy a machine that's got 30 times the capability of that. Up until then, computers were very, very massive. We had another another uh, university that helped us tremendously was Duke University down in Durham, North Carolina. They sent people up here to help us organize everything and get everything together. They took me down to their clinic and showed me their computers. And their computers was in the basement of their, of their uh, building. And it must have been 400 foot long and... 10 foot high, the computers that they had trying to run that clinic, which as a small clinic in rural America, we couldn't afford something like that. So there was nothing else available until IBM made this, what they called a system 32, which was, like I said, it was able to do some, some computer, some computations for us, some printing for us. And at $54,000 was much cheaper than the half million dollars that the other computer systems that that everybody was was marketing. I think me and Billy are having having some trouble conceptualizing a computer that's the size of a dining room table. Yeah. <laughs> Our age is showing. Um, but so, you know, looking back in hindsight, being one of the first clinics in rural America to, to have um, technology like this, it's a big deal. Um, but in that time, was it regarded as something that was a huge deal or was it just kind of swept under the table and nobody really talked about it because I know for me, I'm like, wow, the per the first personal IBM computer, that's big. It was kind of a big deal. We, this clinic, we rotated medical students, you know, in, in their third and fourth year, they do clinical rotations, you know, through family practice, surgery, OBGYN. We rotated more Stanford University. Now Stanford University normally regarded as one of the top institutions of higher education in America. 
we rotated more Stanford University medical students through our clinic than any site outside California. So it was it was kind of a big deal. Like I said, we we were featured in programs in the Reader's Digest, uh, in the Medi Modern Medicine magazine that said, and Business Week magazine did a did a program called Appalachia gets a program at Trust. Uh, so we were it was Associated Press nationwide news releases. Uh, so it was it's pretty it was a pretty big deal uh, to to everybody. And and the the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, when they gave the money to the University of North Carolina to duplicate this clinic in 20 locations, the people who applied for that money, for that grant, had to come here and spend a week with us to look at our program and learn our program. So you can find a similar program to East Kentucky Health Services Center in Spartanburg, South Carolina, in Montana, in Indiana, in Texas, in Wyoming. So it was a pretty big deal. That's that's. That's pretty cool. That's I'm still kind of like thinking about how amazing it is that one, it was the first personal IBM off the assembly line, and two, that there's so so much information in these little laptops and stuff now compared to what there was in these larger larger computers and technologies. You understand that this was this had the computer, the keyboard, also the screen and the printer all in this one machine. I'm moving on to, to another topic. I believe that the um, <clears throat> Kentucky Primary Care Association was, was started there. Uh, could, could you tell us a little bit more about the, the creation and the evolution of that program? I well, looked at their website and uh, they've grown a lot. Um, they've grown a lot. I don't, sometimes I don't know how, whether that's good or bad, but the, the Primary Care Association, we, we thought that the primary, that clinics, what they, the government and paying us Medicaid and Medicare, they wanted to pay us doctor's office rates to run a clinic. And we didn't think that was right. And we thought the way to change that was to get involved in some kind of politics. So we formed the Kentucky Primary Care Association in the basement of our clinic in 1977. The, I was elected the first chairman of the board of the Kentucky Primary Care Association and served that for two, three years, I think and then run for the Kentucky State Senate and kind of quit that when I, when I got into the State Senate. But that the Primary Care Association, the first, the first annual meeting we had, we had in Lexington, we had uh, several speakers, two days of, of uh, the meetings and uh, made about $3,000. Now the Primary Care Association spends 25,000 to have a meeting. So, so I don't know how, how much progress that is, but uh, we formed it and, and they decided they wanted to go a different route. And they, I, I think they're funded now. I think they get money. Good people, good people. I know all the people that's there now. So how did the work of the um, EKHSC impact public health policy for Appalachia or even like Kentucky as a whole, or do you think that it had any effect even on the Kentucky Primary Care Association? Well, we were the first primary care system to be licensed by the state of Kentucky. They actually wanted wanted uh, uh, Frontier Nursing Service to be the first, you might remember Frontier Nursing Service over in Hyden, great organization, trained nurse midwives. Now they've abandoned Hyden and went to Versailles and I don't know what they are now, but they were, they were a good organization then and probably still a good organization. So we are a license number 0002. 
because they wanted to reserve number one for Frontier Nursing Service, but Frontier Nursing Service wasn't ready. So they licensed us and give us that number. But we were the first one licensed in Kentucky. Uh, so I think what happened at East Kentucky Health, if you look at what's going on now, was, was a predecessor to a great number of medical clinics throughout rural Kentucky. And the payment system, the, uh, the cost-based payment system under Medicaid was originated at East Kentucky Health Services. And that's kind of nationwide now. So um, how, how did your experiences with, with the clinic, you mentioned that you were, you were a senator, um, how did your experiences with the clinic motivate you or, or impact you as a senator? Well, I don't know if the experiences at the clinic was all that motivational, but the, the other thing I would mention is that my doctoral dissertation is the development and first year history of East Kentucky Health Services Center for my PhD. Anyway, the, I ran for the uh, Kentucky State Senate to, uh, because I didn't think the area was being treated right in the distribution of the coal severance tax. And that was more my motivation for running than, than anything else. And it was, it was my legislation that required 50% of the severance tax to be returned to the county of origin. So did that end up passing or was that something that was met with a lot of opposition? Well, it was met, met with some opposition and it took a while to get it passed. But I tell you, I always said that I was kind of a, a legend in East Kentucky politics. I, I served in the Kentucky State Senate for 21 years and never was indicted. And uh, there's not a lot to can say that. But anyway, the severance tax. <laughs> That's the, the truth. <laughs> the bills that I'm most proud of is the return of the severance tax. The... Uh, the Healthcare Reform Act of 1990, which built the mental hospital in Hazard, the UK Center in, in Hazard, uh, and the bill that uh, uh, provided medical scholarships for the Pikeville Medical School that reduced the tuition at Pikeville to the same as UK and U of L. Those those three bills is and the return of the, the return of the severance tax. Those bills, if you want to check the legislature, the legislative record history of them never lost a vote in the Senate or the House or in any House or Senate committee. All four of them passed unanimously. And I don't think you've, I don't, can't think of another bill that way, or I can think of one that would possibly be that today, but those bills passed unanimously. Everybody voted for them, Republicans and Democrats. That's awesome. I love seeing, you know, Billy and I are both um, political science majors. So we see a lot of just, honestly human issues being partisan issues um so the thing that i think is really cool is that you know you had a lot of successful legislation in a lot of different areas um and i think that it's really noble to reduce the tuition at pikeville um to get it to the same as like U of L and uk because at the end of the day east kentucky's biggest export is its people um and so I love that that was some of the work that you took part in. Um, so kind of segueing back to. You know, the, the one thing that, that, you know, I'm, I'm 76 years old. Mm -hmm. I've lived in, you know, some people say you've lived in East Kentucky all your life. And I said, not yet. But the, the, um, the thing that, that is not so impressive, but 
I'm 76 years old. I've lived in Kentucky all my life and never lived in a congressional district that had a four-year publicly supported college. Nobody else in Kentucky can say that outside of this district. And that ought to be an embarrassment. I've often said, if you could think, if you could, what a difference it would have made in the lives of people right here in central Appalachia if Eastern Kentucky University had truly been in East Kentucky. Uh, in Whitesburg, for example, look at the city of, look at Fayette County. You know who's the biggest employer in Fayette County? The University of Kentucky. Always yep. has been. Yeah. What a difference that makes in the lives of people there in that county. The job, not the educational opportunity, sure, great, but also the jobs that are continuous there. Yeah, so and I the other two things I would mention to you is I created what is called a dish payment, which is called a disproportionate share payment to hospitals, which gave taxed hospitals 1% of their revenue, matched it to Medicaid, paid them back double what they were getting. And, uh, you know, several things, you know, the, the universal health form that, that I passed, it said anybody doing business in Kentucky has to, and it was because we had a computer at the clinic and everybody had a different healthcare form. They all wanted the same information, but some would pay printed at the top, printed at the bottom, put the diagnosis in the middle. And I said, if you're going to do business in Kentucky, you have to accept a universal claim form so that the computer could build all insurances using one form without a different program for every form you wanted to print. That program was adopted by the, by, by the Medicare. And now there is a universal claim form for everybody in America. Yeah, I used to um, do some clerical work uh, whenever I was in high school. I got a job at the Hazard Clinic. I'm from Hazard. Um, I don't know if I said that already. Um, but yeah, kind of segueing back to the Eastern Kentucky University thing. I don't know if Billy has had the same experience, but any time that I talk to someone here in Lexington who is not from the area, or like not from Eastern Kentucky or Appalachia or anything, and I'm like, oh, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. And they're like, oh, Richmond. Yeah. Oh, I've got a, I've, I've got a funny, well, it's not funny. It actually made me pretty mad, but an experience I had in high school um, when I was in a leadership program and we went to a conference in Vermont, I think it was. And um, at that conference, we, there was a guest speaker and I'm not going to say who it was, but um, he, he worked a lot with the NFL and the Patriots and uh, the Atlanta Falcons. And um, he asked the crowd where we were from, and we said Kentucky. And he said, where from in Kentucky? And we said, Eastern Kentucky. And he said, oh, so y'all are from over in Richmond. And he, he had worked in Murray before. We said, no, we're a little bit further east than that. And um, he, he had the nerve to say, well, I was afraid of the people over there. I'd never go over there. <laughs> and, oh, well, my gosh. The way that that had us all fired up. The way they treated us, they probably should be afraid. Uh, Robert Martin was the president of Eastern Kentucky University and was in the Senate with me for a while. And I used to say about Eastern Kentucky University, it's neither Eastern Kentucky nor University. And he'd get so mad at me for saying that. Well, why think. do you think that um, there's there's not been more universities in, in Appalachia in general? Politics. Politics. You know, the people in Appalachia exhibit some of the same characteristics as the Congo did when it was controlled by Belgium. We were kind of a, a, a kept company. You know, 
the biggest the biggest meeting of financiers that ever happened on the face of the earth where do you think it happened on wall street jenkins kentucky that's where in 1917 john d rockefeller jay gould jay john jacob astor they met and brought their their private railroad cars and come into Jenkins, brought the chef of the Waldorf Astoria with them to fix them lunch and decided how to divvy up the East Kentucky coal fields, who's going to get what. Uh, so we, we never had, you know, the other thing I didn't mention to you is that I am the sponsor that did away with the broad form deed uh, that uh, that also received 100% of the votes in the House and the Senate when it passed and 85% of the people who voted for it once it got on the ballot to change the Constitution of Kentucky. But anyway, I think that's the reason it's just straight, straight politics. Think if you could for a while, there are things, you know, we, we always said that uh, mental institutions and, and don't have real active alumni associations, you know, you know, prisons and mental institutions don't have real active influential alumni associations. So we can put army bases and prisons wherever we want to. What would what if we would put what if we had Fort Campbell in Pike County? We could do that because, like I said, there's no that you you don't go to the army and they said, well, I want to serve I want to serve my time in the army down Lexington on High Street. They said, no, you're in the army. You go where we tell you to. When you get sentenced to prison, you can't say I, I want to make sure now that I serve near the lake so I can fish every day. They said, no, you're going where we tell you to. But that is jobs. That's jobs that we provide. Now, I'm not saying we ought to have prisons on every corner or military bases on every corner, but if we had a public institution, an army base in East Kentucky, think of the difference it would have made in the lives of our people over time. Yeah, I think, you know, if they would have given us that just transition, then I think that our people wouldn't have had such a, and continue to have such a, hard time turning away from the coal industry um a lot of people I, I think tend to you know not understand why so many people in eastern kentucky care about the coal industry so much and i mean there is the whole media campaign of like friends of coal and all of that propaganda but i think a big point that a lot of outsiders are missing like we identify that I think that anybody with a brain can identify that coal is not great for the environment, you know? Um, but for Eastern Kentuckians and Appalachians, that is an industry that put food on the table. And so I think that, you know, when that is taken away and when our towns are no longer booming because of a single industry, um, I think people have a really hard time transitioning away from it if they don't have something else to go into and something that pays somewhat of a decent wage i mean you may work exactly a hundred bucks a day and then your mind's quit and they want you to work for 10 cents an hour it's hard to do uh, you know the coal industry i i support the coal industry i i, I wish it was flourishing and everybody was working but it's, that's not going to happen right the, the problem we had with the coal industry in my opinion is that it was the only industry uh, mm -hmm. You know, the people either worked there or you worked in some support of, of the coal industry. And the coal industry, you know, did some good things. You know that when it opened, the coal town of Wheelwright, Kentucky, over in Floyd County, mm -hmm. was the only incorporated town in America where every house had indoor plumbing. 
that if you wanted to go swimming in a public Olympic sized swimming pool in 1950, you had to go to Wheelwright because it had the only public Olympic sized pool in Kentucky. You know, that Harlan County in the 1930s, Harlan County was the second largest county in Kentucky, second only to Jefferson. The New York Times owned the Harlan County Daily Enterprise up until 1965 or so. So that there's a lot that you know that people don't know, they don't want to understand that when the people the people who settled this area were Scotch Irish, mm-hmm. were about 85%, about three out of four people you met would have been Scotch Irish. Do you know that when they came to America, they were the best educated large mass of people to come to America? Did you know that the that the Hill people, as as they are identified by US News and World Report? As a, as a distinct immigrant group, they call us the Hill people, has, has furnished more presidents of the United States, seven, than any other identifiable immigrant group. But you have to really dig to find that information. They didn't teach you that in school, I don't think, did they? Oh, absolutely not. No, didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't start learning a lot about um, Appalachian heritage and, and and origins and stuff until I came to college and, and started um, taking classes in Appalachian studies and looking at the history of of Appalachia and how how it got to be um, how the uh, stigma began to exist and, uh, of the region and, and stereotypes. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, knowledge to be gained about the region that I really think well, that's we should have started learning about earlier on. There's a reason for that, Billy. That's the way we've been taught. That's what happened to us. You're too way too young to remember the CBS programs in, in 1968, but you know that now they 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 introduced their fall lineup of programs with some sort of theme. I think used to it was must see TV. I've seen um, Christmas in Appalachia and Rich Land Poor People. Yeah, well, they had in 1968 the theme that they wanted everybody to get in CBS was let's get together. If you watch TV on Thursday nights of that year, you saw who really got together was the Appalachian hillbilly. You know, in, in two hours of, sh- of shows, they showed us as people who talked to a pig on Green Acres, didn't know the value of money on the Beverly Hillbillies, or raised up out of a cornfield to crack the sickest jokes on television on Hee Haw. Now, if that's the only exposure you get to Appalachian people, that's who you think we are. Exactly. If you live in Chicago and that's the only exposure you get, that's what you believe everybody in Appalachian, Kentucky feels like. If you watch Christmas in Appalachia or or the homecoming, which was a predecessor to the Waltons, you will remember that this, the, uh, one of the, one of the kids come home and say, let's get down to the uh, square in in the town because there's church ladies down there giving out Christmas gifts. And they go down there and there's this church lady who's saying, I told our church, why send our money to foreign countries when there's plenty of heathens right here in these mountains? But if that's the only exposure you get, that's what you believe we are, but we're not. (laughs) Right. And Appalachia is historically underserved. Um, And, you know, I think that there are a lot of factors that go into that. What do you think will be the, I don't want to say tipping point, because again, I think that it could be a lot of factors that go into making Appalachia 
become a more served area but do you think that'll ever happen or do you think that we'll like just continue to be forgotten by the federal government and well no no i don't think i, I don't think it's the same as it used to be i mean mm -hmm. if you go back to hazard now hazard's not what it used to be right you know, Pikeville is really booming because we've got the University of Pikeville now, the medical school, the optometry school, the medical center doing such a great job. Things are changing. When, when we started East Kentucky Health Services Center, there was eight doctors in Hazard. Now there's probably a hundred. You know, the medical services that you, that you could get here and also from Hyman to Hazard when we started was a good hour drive. Now it's about 20 minutes. So the transportation, the road systems improved the services have improved. I, I, I think I think that the education system has improved, that the public schools have improved. Uh, none of that is where we want it to be, but it has improved. So I, I think things are changing. I think the thing that's gonna help us more than anything is if we can ever get, if we could ever get back to making sure that people are, are, are educated, that our people are educated. We. You know, in, in uh, 1890, the school year in Pike County was four months long and attendance averaged 20%. And that's typical of what was happening. And the biggest reason for that was, you know, like I said, our ancestors, the best educated large mass of group to come to America, what happened? Well, the Civil War happened. You know, the, the Civil War was really a civil war only in Appalachia. You know, in the, in the North, it was about marching, marching armies. In the South, it was about the plantations. In Appalachia, we didn't have slaves because the, the land wasn't suited for plantation farming. We had no use for slaves. We, but it was brother against brother. You know, we were, we were really divided here. So it become not safe for children to go to school. So the, the schools closed in 1860 in Appalachia and they didn't reopen to 1890. And then, like I said, four months long with only 20% of the people attending. That's where we got such a bad, bad start and such lost a generation. But I think that's coming back. I, 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 I disagree with people who say this, this area is going down. I think, it's, I think it's a bright future here. And I think some of the things we got to realize is, and that this, the, the pandemic has showed us this, that I tried to preach forever, you don't have to go down and put wheels on cars to have a job anymore. You can't actually work from home. The, the, the internet, the, the the things that we can do with computers like this Zoom call we're doing right now, totally, totally new from 30 years ago, this could not have happened. Now the mountains are not such a barrier. And also we've made improvements here with, with our road system, with our educational system. So we're getting ready. Well, one of, one of the purposes of this podcast is, is to spotlight all the great things that are going on right now or all the great things that have developed in Appalachia and um, I've, we've, we've had the Appalachian Artisan Center on here, mm -hmm. um, Hyman Settlement School, then uh, that's just in Knott County. And um, we're about to have a few other places that'll be pretty cool once those are confirmed. So we're, that's one of the goals of this podcast is to, is to try to show people that Appalachia isn't just this place full of uneducated hillbillies mountain people it's we're, we're trying to show that appalachia does have a bright future and kind of spotlight these things that are going on in the region and, and uh, get more awareness out of those things i think one of the things too that's going to be a sad realization is 
as the coal industry goes down, and, and I, like I said, I wish everybody was working that wanted to work, but I, I think realistically, we have to admit that that's not gonna happen, that coal is gonna to continue to go down, I think, and be replaced by renewable energy, energies and, and wind power and solar power, whatever. We are losing population and without the coal industry, we don't have the economy to support the population that we have. So I think you're gonna to continue to lose population until you reach that point where the people that are here will be able to stay here. I don't know that, you know, I mean, we could we could dream maybe, maybe Toyota will come down to the Forks of Beaver and build a big factory tomorrow, but I'm doubting it. Uh, you know, we, we've got, I always uh, tell this story about a ship that was lost in the ocean and they ate all their food, they drank all their water and they were dying. And the ship, it was, a, it was a sailing ship, so it just had to go where the wind would blow. And the, the people were really suffering. And they saw another ship and they called out to the ship and said, can you send us some water? Our people are dying of thirst. And the ship's captain yelled back to them, cast down your buckets where you are. Because they had drifted to the mouth of the Amazon River, where the river comes out in such force that it pushes back the salt water for miles and they were sitting in fresh water and didn't know it. And they could eliminate a lot of suffering, cast down your buckets where you are. Think about that in Appalachia. We could have and should have a four year public supported university right here. You know, we shouldn't have the Appalachian Regional Healthcare Organization with the headquarters in Lexington and all the hospitals in Appalachia. We shouldn't have the coal industry mining coal in Appalachia with a headquarters in Pittsburgh. You know, we ought to be, like I said, what have we got here? Let's take advantage of what we have. Yeah, I think um, that there's truly something special in Appalachia. And I think that, you know, there is just a honey hole of potential for the great things that could happen here. Um, earlier, you talked a little bit about, you know, COVID-19. Um, and so I kind of want to segue a little bit. So the clinic has obviously been known for persevering through hard times. Um, and this year has obviously for all of us um, been some of the toughest of times. I mean, I think we've all been in the trenches with different things. Um, so what impacts has the pandemic had on the Eastern Kentucky Health Services Center? Well, <laughs> We've got these little things that you use in the, in the restaurant, you know, when you go in and it's full and they give you this little thing that goes off when you can come in to your seat. Uh -huh. Our patients sit in the parking lot now with one of them and they, they vibrates when they can come in uh, to the clinic. So the, the other thing that, that, the, that happens that's gonna be, I think, and you even saw uh, is telehealth. And you saw Amazon is now saying this year, they're gonna have their telehealth program in every state in the nation so that you can get on the computer and talk to a nurse in Chicago and let them you know, tell you what's wrong with you. So we, we've had to get into that too. So all of that's, and, and patients have, have to get used to not gonna see the doctor face to face, reach out and touch you. you, know, you and you're probably gonna see a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Uh, so it's had the same effect here that's had the, everywhere. And, you know, of course, wearing the mask and, and those things that you have to do to. 
to try to try to control this pandemic. And I think we're making progress. I think the nation's making progress and we're going to get out of this. I, I kind of want to go back to how we were talking about um, the future of Appalachia and, and kind of narrow that down to um, discussing the, the future of the clinic as well. What, what do you want to see with, with the clinic going forward in, into the future? Well, I hope it continues to exist. I hope it, I hope it, uh, you know, content, continues to provide services to people and, and that uh, people feel like they can uh, continue to come there. You know, we are, we are one of the very few organizations, even though we're not funded by the federal government or the state government, we're one of the very few that never laid off anybody during this pandemic. Our people have, have stayed working all during the pandemic. Uh, so, so we, we kind of, we kind of look at everybody down there as family and, and, and for, gosh, this makes 49 years that the clinic's been there. Never been anybody refused service for any reason in the 49 years. So I hope it continues that. Did you say you've never had to, ref you've never refused anybody ever? It's always been never people come in and get treatment no matter what. Never, nothing has ever mentioned about payment until they've been seen and checking out. Uh, there's never been anybody refused for any reason services at the clinic. That's, the, the, the clinic's really made a, like you said, it's, it's a model um, for innovation, healthcare, um, just, just about every, everything, everything you could think about in terms of, of how you would want a clinic to be. So um, I'm really glad that you've came on on the podcast and had this discussion with us and talked about it. And, and uh, you, you've taught us a lot. And Absolutely. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. And mm -hmm. I, we've, we were excited to, to have this episode um, ever since we knew that you were, you were going to be on. And uh, I also think uh, Dr. Bailey that, you know, the clinic and you, I think that, you exemplify and really speak to the resilience of Appalachian people and just what we're capable of. So just wanted to thank you a lot for, you know, taking the time out of your busy day to, to chat with us. And we've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, in the meantime, I'm Billy Devricks. And I'm Stacy Fugit. And we'll holler at you later. <laughs>